0: Welcome back for another installation of the Noggin Notes podcast. I am Jake Wiskirchen. I am your host. And today's interview is awesome. We here at Noggin Notes try to educate and expand and enrich your noggin for the purposes of mental well-being and uh, physical well-being and all sorts of wellness. And today is, I think, going to be amazing because Alex Escabel, who is my interviewee, is just an absolute dynamo. Some of the stuff that he dropped throughout this interview was uh, was just awesome. I told him during and afterward that I was going to use much of it in my own life, uh, privately and professionally. And now here I'm recording this intro several days later, and that has remained true. And I hope, Alex, uh, if you're listening to this, you can take some personal pride in knowing that you definitely enhanced and enriched my own personal and professional well-being uh with the conversation and i do look forward to working with you down the road so thanks for that enough um grandstanding and um and posturing i guess but i think our guests are amazing and, and they deserve to be praised in the meantime, if you want to support our sponsors, please do. Noggin Notes is sponsored by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash Notes. You can get a free 30-day trial with a free audio download that you get to keep even if you cancel. Cancel anytime inside those 30 days. But while you're there, check out their totally unmatched library of audio selections. Aud- uh, audibletrial.com slash Notes. And also check out Zephyr Wellness. That's the company that I co-own here in Reno, Nevada. Check out our YouTube channel, our Instagram account, and our Facebook and Twitter feeds. You can get really cool, good information on that too that helps to better your life. Share it with a friend. Please, please share this around. Give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps drive listenership. More listenership equals more people getting helped. And that's really all we want here. Um, if you want, reach out to us with your ideas or suggestions, comments, feedbacks, concerns, quips, quandaries, queries, cheap shots and bad jokes. And you can do that at info at or info at zephyrwellness.org. We appreciate you. Uh, we wish you much peace and happiness. Enjoy this interview with Alex. Okay, so today we have with us uh, Alejandro Esquibel otherwise known as Alex, uh, for those right. for the non-Spanish uh, speakers, uh, and I don't even speak that well, and I've lost most of it because I don't practice it, but hello, Alex. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Let me tell you, super stoked to be on
1: here. Thank you again for uh, asking me part of your guests on Naga Notes. Um, I actually have listened to a lot of your podcasts before Perfect. and so super stoked to be able to be part
0: of it oh that's super cool i i, I never you know i never know that you know <laughs> like you produce this stuff and you send it out into the ether and you're like i hope somebody listens uh, that's cool thanks man appreciate you saying that yeah so you are a marriage and family therapist um what other credentials or accolades do you have that you want to share yeah, I'm a father. I'm a
1: husband. Um, I'm I'm a son. You know, I'm so much more than just a therapist. And so I spend time actively um, letting people know that there's just so much more to who I am than just what I do for, for work and how I support people. Um, but most importantly, uh, I, I'm a supporter. I love to help people find the reality in their lives and figure out that their story matters matters. And when they can accept the reality of that, they can begin to heal. Um, so for me, that's, I take passion in that. Um, and that's probably why I spread myself so thin in so many areas. Um, but still try to make sure I give my family, my primary energy, um, because that's what really matters to me and spiritually
0: that's important to me as well. That's awesome. (laughs) And I'm really glad you touched on that and we can hear the the kids in the background there. That's awesome. Um, (laughs) uh, for, for a lot of years now, I've really helped, uh, push, I uh, think I'm helping uh, push the narrative that um, in our culture, like in, in English speaking culture, and this you can testify to this because I, I want to spend some time talking about Spanish speaking culture and whatnot. But in, in the English language, we only have one form of the verb to be the infinitive to be. So it, it's like I am, you are, he or she is. Um, and it sounds very permanent to our Western English speaking ears. But in other cultures and languages, they have two different forms. One is permanent and one is uh, temporary. And in Spanish, for example, there's the ser version, S-E-R, which means uh, it's like I am uh, whatever I am kind of ongoing in perpetuity, like, you know, yo soy hombre, I'm a man, it's not really going to change, but outside of some uh, very rare, unique circumstances, versus the estar version, which is uh, E-S-T-A-R, and you say, like, yo estoy enojado, you know, I'm, I'm mad, meaning I'm temporarily mad, but I'm not going to be mad forever. So, why that's important is because when we say, I am a marriage and family therapist, or I am an accountant, or I am a police officer, it sounds permanent. Like that job is part of your identity and that's okay. Like we, we want, we can say that and like, yes, this is the thing that I do and I identify with this. Um, but the problem is if you hold too closely to that, uh, very temporary thing, cause jobs don't last forever. Usually, um, then you go through crises when you change jobs or retire or whatever. And that can cause some, some real psychological distress, um, uh, so I really appreciate that you say there's so much more to me than just my occupation or my, my license or whatever. Cause, um, I, I try to say that as frequently as I, I can, but I don't think I've mentioned it on here, uh, in, in a great number of <laughs> episodes, at least. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. And it's an invitation to the listening audience is, you know, to just check your language a little bit and say, you know, I do this for a living, perhaps or I am a father. Nobody's ever going to change that. Um, you know, I am a healer. That's, that's a, that's an identity that's never going to change, but you know, irrespective of title. So thanks for that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so ahead. what most people don't know about me is,
1: um, so my parents are first generation immigrants, immigrants from Mexico. Um, my dad actually left when he was 16, didn't make it past second grade. My mom left when she was 18, but dropped out of school when she was in fifth grade in Mexico because uh, she had to raise 10 of her siblings because my grandmother came to the U.S. and left my mom um, with my grandpa, who was a traveling musician. And wow. so she, at the age of 12 or 13, she was 13, so my grandma had kids back-to-back-to-back to back to back, common in Mexico. Mm-hmm. She had to raise 10 of her siblings um, on her own. So when she came here, um, I really didn't even know English until I was about second grade and so for me a lot of the ideology the values the belief systems are very much ingrained with our culture because that's what i understood Okay? Mm-hmm. And so resilience and strength is built into our culture. And so for us, um, this idea that we are only one thing um, was never really part of our belief system. My mom always taught us. I mean, I still remember to this day, she said, I'm going to teach you to cook, clean, iron and and wash your clothes. Because if you marry someone who doesn't know how to do it, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you're so much more than just your circumstance. And uh, that was really powerful, but I didn't understand it. Um, now I look back and I'm super, super thankful. Um, but yeah, so it, to me as a narrative therapist, okay. Um, one of really the way that I tend to see the world is through my language. And that was kind of, I got to give credit to my mom for that. She, she did a, an awesome job. Um, even to this day, she knows limited Spanish, um, or Sp- limited English, but, uh, as a business owner of three businesses. Um, so yeah, I'm just super proud of where I come from. And I think that's what really fueled my fire to kind of get to the place that I'm at now.
0: I want you to talk about your, uh, uh, journey to where you are geographically in Nevada. But first I want, I would like you to explain narrative therapy to, to the audience. And for people who maybe not understand that it's, uh, it's so much more than just your story, right? So, Absolutely. um, help, help us understand what narrative therapy is. Absolutely. So um, I'll just try to simplify it the best way as possible. Um,
1: What we understand now is that the way that we see the world through our language and through our stories can really help define how we do the world, how we present ourselves in this world. Um, And so we go through our life, we will experience many different things, which we will attach language to or belief systems to it. Okay. And when you come into narrative therapy and to see me and and I use narrative therapy, what we're trying to do is we're trying to have you reauthor your story. Okay. Where you get to be the author and you get to choose the meanings, the values, the belief systems, things that have happened in your life and even author ongoing. Um, and so we get to focus a lot on your language. Okay. Um, so instead of saying, you know, um, I mean, we're gonna get into like shame and, and shame and guilt here, but uh, instead of saying like, you know, I am a failure, you know, I, I, I may have made a mistake or may have failed at that, but I'm not a failure um, or uh, whatever instance may have happened to me. You know, I, I don't have to own that as mine. That was something I didn't have control of. I get to choose what this looks like going for now. Um, so we really emphasize on how do you own your own story, author your story and use your language in every day to help, make that like
0: manifest. So a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of uh, references to personal awareness, choice, self-talk, and then um, modifying that to put the person in, in charge of his or her own life instead of maybe being mm-hmm. uh, subject to somebody else's uh, narrative of what they thought that person should be. Right. So you're, you're questioning what Jung would call introjects, those beliefs about self, right. That are unquestioned. Yes. Um, yes. I like the idea of writing because I, I have a journalism undergrad too, and so I love writing. But but the idea of authoring authorship is like we have got empty pages on which to write, right? So yeah, some stuff may have been written to this point, um, but there's different ways you can interpret that. And then it's like, choose your own adventure <laughs> at some point. And that's, that's like why we come into to counseling. It's like, well, things aren't going well in my life or the way that I want them to. Um, and your version of helping them do that is to say, hey, what would you like it to say? How scary is that for people to do? Well, here's the thing, being that
1: I, I work a lot with the Hispanic population, I find that that modality of work is probably one of the most effective ways of doing this, okay? Um, because to be Hispanic or to be Latinx, there's just, it's so eclectic. We're, we're from all over different parts of the country, South America and Central America, and so um, please do not make the mistake of calling Hispanic, you know, ecuadorian or calling someone from honduras mexican that's not gonna fly okay um but each subculture within the latinx community has their own way of speaking their own way of seeing the world and so when uh it's really important to use that person's language to help them create that story for themselves um so that's really key and i may have missed your question there but i thought that was important to share
0: no no no. i I think that's that's really good um the the question I asked was how scary is it for people to to try to evaluate that? Um, and it, you did a nice job of basically saying meet them where they are, and it just unfolds naturally um, because there's already culture and story built into uh, anyone's uh, experience, really. And when you say language, you don't mean dialect of you know ethnic language. You mean like a person's way of talking about. How they see the world is that is that right? absolutely yes absolutely it's about how
1: they express themselves when they view their world okay so um, that's what I'm most looking for.
0: It sounds like the key here is to, to remain humble and curious uh, because even being a, a Spanish speaker you're not gonna you're not gonna know. Necessarily, what the what the dialectical differences are among uh, various cultures and subcultures, much the same as like I'm a native English speaker from America, but like somebody growing up in the South is going to be very different from somebody growing up in the Midwest versus a city dweller on the coast. Um, so that's it's not we don't want to necessarily believe that we have to make ourselves culturally competent hundred percent in all cultures because we'd never arrived there. What we want to do is be humble and curious. Um, is, is that, is that how you go about it? Like, Hey, tell me what your story is that brought you in uh, and then go from there. Like, what does that look like?
1: Absolutely. And that's why I
0: gravitate towards person centered therapy. Okay. So narrative stuff, um, EMD,
1: because what I, my belief is that who you are, your internal uh, way of being has its ability to basically heal itself. Okay. Or to make the most of, of yourself. Like, uh, even though in Hispanic culture, we tend to see people with a title as, um, you know, respectable. And sometimes people come into therapy. Well, Hispanics come to therapy and they're like, tell me what to do. Okay. Uh, yeah. You're an authority. You tell me how to fix this. Okay. Um, but what I'm trying to do there is I'm trying to really honor their individuation, right? Like who you are as a person. You have the skill set and the ability to help create yourself. And um, I do that by helping them to slow things down, be curious into their world. But it's fearful. People are scared, right? And there's a lot of variables that that play into that. But one of the hardest things is is just getting someone in my seat sometimes. uh, Well, getting a Hispanic person in my seat sometimes is just really challenging. Um, So I tend to see most of my referrals from word of mouth. So Mm -hmm. someone I've seen already will then tell their aunt or their uncle or whatever it may be. And that's how they tend to show up in my seat.
0: You know, I'm in the middle of a a series on black mental wellness as uh conjured up by by my our co co-founder uh, Safiso Rapinga who's a, a black man from South Africa um currently living in Cambodia but he he wanted to delve into this and what I'm learning in these conversations is that there's a suspicion of of authority and of particularly medical authority in, within the black community is that similar with Hispanics
1: yeah there's definitely that there. We definitely see that. And in different ways, because we have to think about this is that um, as I was thinking about getting on this podcast with you, I was thinking about the different layers of, you know, uh, acculturation. OK, so when we think about a Hispanic person, we're not just thinking about the person, you know, first generation person who immigrated here, but we're getting to the space now where we're third, fourth generation within my family house. Mm -hmm. OK, so there's definitely a a different approach for way I would approach someone like in in my parents position versus maybe someone in my niece's position. OK, and that's important to
0: to to make sure that as a clinician you're aware of that. Yeah, keep going. I want to hear more about that. Like, how do you do that? Um, well,
1: you get curious. Okay. You have to be curious. Okay. You have to be curious and really tailor, tailor it to them. Okay. So what the world looks like for my mom or my dad, um, their belief systems, their values, um, the way of life, their view on mental health is far different than the way that maybe my niece is, who's, you know, a sophomore in high school, um, who's had time to acclimate, you know, culture it here to the U.S. And, and see things differently. And so what that may be is instead of just taking one perspective of my own view of what I think this looks like, because I'm Hispanic, I, I really allow the person to share their inner world with me. Okay, um, I get really curious. What does that actually look like for you? Tell me a little bit more of what that may look like in your household. How may your parents see that different than the way you do it? Um, what do your What your grandma think about that? Okay, um, and for like my my parents or someone in my parents' age, um, that may be you know. Tell me a little bit about what that was like for you when you were in Mexico versus the way it is like for you now. Okay, um, so I just get
0: super curious. I really want to understand their world through their lens and not my lens. It sounds like. A lot of the same uh, barriers to care exist in the Hispanic community as they do broader um, global community where there's there's so long been this messaging that says, um, don't be a crazy person, right? So we, we have to break that off, and it seems to afflict older generations more than the younger generations because younger generations now think – I mean, one of the benefits of social media is that we're all sharing things, and people are – making it okay to go seek help. Uh, help is not uh, perceived as weak and therefore bad anymore. It's perceived as uh, vulnerable, and through vulnerability comes strength. That's, that's great, but there seems to be a disconnect generationally, right? What are some of the unique things that are obstacles to care in, within the Hispanic community that aren't necessarily present uh, in other other cultures, especially white western European cultures, which is from where psychotherapy evolved in in the origin or origins of it
1: yeah um you know let's just start with the general understanding okay of what mental health and overall wellness is okay um in the hispanic culture um you have to remember that most of the Immigrants who fled from whatever country they fled to the U.S. um, were those who were not striving or had life set up for success. Okay. I've had the ability to be able to travel often to go. And what I've noticed there is that there's a lot of people who do very well who have no desire to ever come to the U.S. Okay, And those that did come are those that were struggling, poverty, lack of education, lack of understanding of certain things. Okay, mm. And so their basic understanding of what mental health looked like from their roots is a psicologo. psicologo is for a loco okay, for someone who is crazy, right, a psychologist didn't provide family therapy, didn't provide couples work, didn't help you reach, you know, self-actualization, um, it was, he was there to help someone who, at that point, they would consider, you know, maybe severe mental illness, schizophrenia, too something far like gone, that, someone's psychosis,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and so that was their only understanding of it, okay, so transplant them here to the U.S., they, they're bringing their understanding and their belief system Okay. To the U S. And so when they find their kids, you know, someone like me, first generation here, trying to acclimate between both worlds being Hispanic at home and then trying to be Westernized at school and having conflict in, in my identity and, and looking to fit in and to belong as, you know, for belonging, especially in that age, um, we might find ourselves in conflict with our parents' values. And so for what that looked like for our household is, you know, my brother started in, in gangs. Okay. and my sister. Um, were involved in gangs. Um, Dad wasn't around. Um, mom worked two or three jobs, so we didn't have real belonging at home, so they looked for it elsewhere. And it, it created conflict. Did my mom need some help, support? Absolutely. As a parent, as a family, my siblings did. But because she thought or she believed that mental health wasn't a thing, it was just for crazy people, she would seek authority, probation officers, um, the police, right? in um, It wasn't an initial reaction to a response to say, you know what? We need help as a family. We need a therapist. Um, That never, those language, those words um, didn't come up in our household. The only thing that came up was you're crazy, estás loco. I'm going to send you to psychiatric ward. Um, So as I grew up and as I was developing, I, I started to see that. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in college so I remind I remind you, my dad has ten kids, my mom has six. I'm the first one in my household to graduate high school. Wow, much less, much less go on to do undergrad and graduate studies. Okay, so I'm on my own path, uh, I'm pretty much lost. I'm trying to figure out the world. Luckily, I entered into a fraternity that really valued you know uh culture and academics and that was super helpful um but i'm in china springs youth camp as a counselor and i'm working eight ten hours a day trying to help these kids just stabilize and and then we have a therapist come in sit with them for an hour and they're different and i'm like what's going on here i'm on the wrong side of things here and so that was really my first exposure to mental health treatment and Uh i was at that point 21 22 years old Mm -hmm. and 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 I, it was to me. It does not surprise me that people my age really don't have that understanding. So there's that. But it, the understanding. So I spend a lot of time when people, well, when Hispanics. I'm going to keep using people because they're my people. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to keep it simple. Um, but I spend a lot of time just creating psychoeducation the first couple sessions about what this actually looks like, what my actual role is. Um, it's, I spend far more time explaining mental health treatment, um, with my Hispanic population than I do. Maybe, you know, someone else who is more Westernized.
0: That um, is super useful. And I appreciate that because I'm going to take this back to my supervision groups and, uh, share that for sure. I mean, i basically force them to listen to these podcasts anyway, but (laughs) no, not true. Not true. I don't do that to my interns, but I'm going to show that's, that's hugely important. The psychoeducational component to explain what therapy is. Um, I think, I think that's awesome. And it's very, very useful for, for me with the fledgling clinicians. Um, go back a little bit to college if you would, because I'm curious about this path to how you landed, um, not only in college with a surrounded by what, 15 other siblings. Is that, did I count that right? Ten. Or 10, 10. 10 other siblings, yeah. Yes. Um and you ended up in college, first of all, but then you you went to graduate school, obviously for marriage and family therapy. Um where are you from, by the way? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Winnemucca. So my parents are originally from okay. Michoacan, Mexico, Right. Um and that's originally, I guess, where I'm from. I and so I didn't know it was Winnemucca, though. I thought but you went to UNR, right? University of Nevada? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought you grew up in Reno. Okay. Uh, so that's awesome. We'll get to that, the Winnemucca thing in a minute, because that's super, super critical to this uh, interview. Um, but <laughs> what were you doing in college initially that got you to China Springs? It sounds almost like like knowing the, the appeal to the authority and all that stuff. Were you, were you pursuing criminal justice by chance? Yeah, how'd you know? Just (laughs) connecting the dots. Um, Social justice here.
1: That's So again, growing up in a household where, you know, parents were trying their best, or at least my mom was, dad wasn't really around. Mm -hmm. Um, I just got to witness and be part of so much that was really challenging for someone at that age to really, you know, understand. And so I, I, I came into college with the idea that I wanted to do so, some type of social injustice. So my ultimate goal was I wanted to be a human rights attorney for the United Nations.
0: Oh, um, wow. Big, that's, big stage.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, I fell a little short, but uh, it's never too late. I don't know about that. Uh, but that's really So I was a pre-law major um, until I figured, well, this might be a little too I want to graduate already. So I'll do CJ. So I was a CJ major with a minor in psychology. Um, and I worked at a law firm for four years. while I was an undergrad, started as just a runner, ended up doing paralegal work um, and then realized I hated it. Uh, <laughs> and so come graduation date. Right. Um, and remind you, I'm the first person in my family that's in, that's in college. And so I had no idea how to navigate the tricky waters of, you know, the socialization piece and academics and all of that. And so, uh, come graduation day, I had all this pressure on me to, you know, achieve something, um, for my family. Like they were rooting for me. Um, I was the first one that was doing something. And so I graduated and I'm like, I have to apply for grad for law school. That's what I have to do because that's what i told everybody I was going to do. Applied. I got in. Um, so I applied like eight different places. I got, and then I was like, I, this is where my work starts. I got to figure out what I want. Um, so I didn't go, I didn't Mm. go. Um, luckily I met my wife, um, in at UNR also, um, who's just an amazing creative person. Um, I think that's what I enjoy the most about her is her creativity and her vulnerability when it comes to that. And so I just was so captured by who she was. She wanted to finish her interior design degree in Sacramento. So we moved there and I said, okay, I got to figure out what this looks like for me. And, um, I honestly didn't even know what marriage and family therapy was, to be honest with you, Jake. I I didn't even know when I applied to my graduate school. I (laughs) certainly didn't. I certainly didn't. (laughs) Uh, I just thought I was going to be some type of counselor um, because youth was my second passion. And once I was knee deep in it, I was just like, whoa, this speaks to me. I'm all about this. And so um, that's where I ended up getting into I chose a international in Sacramento because they have a component where there's an international piece where you get to travel to Mexico city, um, China, these different locations wow. and actually practice and learn. You have a class while you're there and you practice. Whoa. Yeah. So I got to go to Mexico city for six months while I was in this program. Wow. And so that's what really spoke to me. And so, um, fast forward. I graduated. I'm still struggling with who I am as a person, right? Because there's so much work that gets done in grad school. Sure, Um, Not enough time to repair everything. But yeah, that's really ultimately how I got to be where I'm at now. And never did I choose this path for myself. I I never um, would have thought you're going to be a mental health therapist down the road. Never.
0: And here you are doing it and you're doing it really, really well. Uh, What fraternity, by the way? Uh, I was new alpha kappa. We did we did have those guys when I was around. I think we're a little split in age. How old are you? Uh, thirty three. Per, intimate personal question you don't ask people, but yeah, so I'm forty two. Right. So we were I I, I New Alpha Kappa was around I think, but they had just formed I wanna say in twenty oh one ish when I graduated, maybe two thousand. Anyway, sorry, uh, rabbit trail into Jake's past. <laughs> I'm recalling all my student involvement and whatnot. Uh, I was a sigap for for what it's worth. Um, no, no, I'm very aware. Oh, are you? <laughs> How do you notice so much about me. Um. So anyway, um, you're you're in Winnemucca now, which is where you grew up. Uh, tell people about what Winnemucca is as a town in the middle of northeast Nevada. Um, the the climate there, the not the weather climate, but like the, you know, the political climate ec- economy, that kind of thing. And uh, how it may have changed from when you were a kid to, to now. Yeah. Do you mind if I put it in a story context? Go ahead. Being,
1: You're the guest. Who I am, okay. Stay true to who I am. So, um, my parents have lived there for 52 years. Um, it is a small town that is basically run by sports and mining industry. Mm-hmm. So sports mm-hmm. is a big thing, but the mining industry really is kind of what booms. Oneamaka rodeo, yeah. Um, so we a lot of rodeo. So we get a, a lot of rodeo. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we get a lot of transplants from different areas because of the mining, right? So there's just a lot of people who can make a lot of money without a lot of education. Um, and so it basically, I just remember it just really fluctuates with how the gold is doing. So if gold's mm-hmm. doing really good, is doing very well. Gold isn't doing very good, then Puerto Rico isn't doing very well. Mm-hmm. So I left the day after I graduated high school, and I said, I'm out of here. And I didn't come back for 10 years. Wow. I said, I told myself I wouldn't. I, I kind of yeah. at a, a young age knew that I wanted more from life than just what it could offer. Um, but fast forward, graduated, you know, was in Sacramento working in a nonprofit, working with severe, the severely mentally ill um, and we get pregnant. And so we had to come back because we wanted to be around family. So we moved to Reno. And I always said that I'm, I'm a giver. That's the codependent piece in me that <laughs> is developed in my family, right? Um, so I would actually try, travel once a week from Reno to Winnemucca, um, for about two years. Yeah. I'd travel every, every like the like two hours there, two hours back once a week for about three years um, and it finally became a little taxing on our family. And so we decided to make the jump out there, um, out here. And so it was an easy transition because I had a family, but at the same, it was, it took some time to kind of re to the small town vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just used to much more. And my wife had to go through kind of like a little identity loss, you know, she's an interior designer and she had nothing to design in Winamaka. Um, Where's she from? So she, she's from Fallon.
0: Oh, okay. So similar yeah. small town. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Um, So that's how we kind of got into Winnemucca, um, back to Winnemucca, I should say. And I started initially with a private clinic for the mining industry. So they have a small clinic there that's just for the mining industry. So if you're a miner, you get to go to this clinic. You have, so I was kind of like a private therapist for the, for the miners. um sort of which, like an EAP or not quite? No, not quite. Okay, um, it's You have almost all the medical services you need, but in a private clinic.
0: Oh, so okay. You, uh, so you can go yeah. keep going. It's not just limited to six sessions. No, okay. not at all, cool. um, which I enjoyed, and financially it was a huge benefit
1: for us, but uh, I quickly learned that I was being vacuumed into a little section. Um, there was just so many more people in Winamaka that needed help, and I couldn't really reach them because I was just so – basically just stuck there. Um, And so after that, I've always had my own private practice on the side. Um, After that, I was just like, okay, how how do I reach the whole community? And so then I just went fully private practice. And so with that, I ended up working. I work with um, drug court, family treatment court, um, juvenile services, um, the Humboldt County School
0: District, um, and the reservation in McDermott. Good, good. That's awesome. Uh, the, the backdrop, I might as well share my story too, because um, for people who don't know, when we formed Zephyr Wellness, um, it was at a time when I had uh, I'd already spent seven or eight, six or seven, eight years in um, Silver Springs and Fernley and Fallon bouncing around doing in-home work with children and adolescents, but also as a substitute teacher in, in Lyon County. And um, I had tried to continue doing private practice on contract in, in Lyon County, which is also rural. It's a little further, uh, west toward Reno. But, um, when we opened Zephyr, I was like, we, we need to be, we need to continue being in Lyon County. They need, they need work. And, uh, other communities like Winnemucca, like Lovelock, Fallon, Elko, had continually requested our services out there because there just weren't any like there literally weren't any there were there was like the state agencies but they were often understaffed because it's hard to get people into rural areas uh because unless you come from there and want to return to there it's hard to have a passion it's very very different work and um if you don't have a passion for it it doesn't matter how much money you throw at uh, somebody to be out there, whether they're uh, clinical or or any other profession, they just don't stay very long. It's uh, it's just very different. So to hear Alex tell the story about how he returned to his his community actually was effective and in his community, but only it sounds like I don't know if this is a fair assessment to make, but you if you're working with the wine the minds maybe you were working only with a transient population that wasn't necessarily you know, had roots in Winnemucca. And was that, was that frustrating? Absolutely. It was a mix. So there's some that
1: have been, you know, working there very long, but oftentimes there's most of them are transient, but it was frustrating, extremely frustrating for me.
0: And you wanted to like do more for the people who weren't just going to leave to the next mining job. So you, you took the risk, you opened up your own private practices for anybody who's ever like tried to open their own business, um, betting only on themselves and not on the, the company paycheck that's, you know, retaining you, it's frightening. Like it, it takes an incredible amount of uh, guts and faith in oneself. And so you did that. And now I'm hearing that you're working with all those entities that at one point or another, like asked, and we just didn't have the capacity. It's just, like I said, it's very expensive and it's very risky and it's hard to send people out there who don't necessarily, you know, have a heart to be there. You're working with the the courts and the juvenile services and the social services and the schools, um, which is, I mean, it makes me smile because for for years and years and years they've had the need and if anybody went out there they were often just a charlatan fly-by-night agency that was only interested in like making money and not necessarily providing real actual healing and growth to the community and in some instances they just openly defrauded medicaid along the way anyway so when those people invariably collapse or get uh you know caught by by the the state agencies or whatever or they just feel the heat turning up and they they disappear Overnight, like the the way they parachuted in, it leaves the community very wounded, and so it takes a lot of um, effort to get regain that trust in the services. And so having having roots there, having fifty years of your family being there, I'm sure went a long way in, in recapturing some of that trust. Um, but how is it now? Like, are people warming to the idea that mental wellness is something to be uh, considered and embraced and attended to or they, is there still a great deal of resistance out there?
1: Yeah, I think it's mixed to be honest with you, Jake. So um, I actually moved back to Winamaka right when there were family support center in Winamaka which is really geared towards providing yep. mental health treatment and a bunch of other services for the family and so prior to this we only had county mental health okay, um, which is a lot of telehealth because there's not a lot of um, providers out there and so uh It was challenging in the sense that um, the best way that I can explain it is so many people know they need help, um, but don't even know where to begin. Because the biggest challenge with these rural locations is Love Lock, Winamaka, Elko, is there's just not a lot of resources, okay? Yeah. Um, there's hardly any resources. Okay. Um, not to mention there's just a lot of, you know, you have to worry about dual relationships as well. Oh yeah. And yeah. and so it's, there's just so many unique challenges to these areas and, and the, these areas themselves, the population there have unique challenges to them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it was really, really tough initially for me to, even though I had roots there, to fully reintegrate because you might likely see me at Walmart. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, frequently. Yep. And that may be hard to be vulnerable in session. And so it got to the space to be honest with you, where I told my wife, I will not go grocery shopping Then shut myself out of the world, but it was just so hard because I would always run into clients. And um, as much as I would front load stuff, like, You know, you want to talk to me? We'll schedule a session. they still stop me and want to share an update and things like that. And so I am noticing a huge shift. Um, There's some great people now on the hospital board, the Family Support Center board, who are really pushing for some mental health. Like we used to have, I forget the school program that offered free therapy.
0: Project AWARE.
1: Yeah, project where. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and that was helpful because that was the first time a lot of these kids actually had some type of exposure or, right. you know, parents had exposure to a real clinician. Um, and so a lot of the times they were my, f- they, I was the first time they had ever seen a therapist. Um, and so uh, again, a lot of it was psychoed at the beginning, just explaining what yeah. the process was going to be like.
0: Yeah, Lovelock attributes that project Aware Grant uh, to a great deal of its success. That there, we're now rolling into year seven since it began. So the the grant lasted five years, and Zephyr was fortunate enough to come in on the tail end of the fifth year, and we saw the efforts that had. It was a lot of effort by people not named Jake. Who um, really built that in over time and and made it okay to to have conversations? You know, signs of suicide screenings, for example. You know, initially parents were like, well, "I don't even send my kid there," and then eventually they saw the benefit, and then the kids started pointing out other kids who needed help and it was like holy cow this works exactly the way we wanted it to work and now there's this natural normal conversation among the community where it's like well did you did you check you know check out your kid you know or did you go get help or or you know what are you doing about that as as opposed to before and i'm, I'm not from lovelock but hearing some of the the native lovelock uh residents talk about it, it's like it's completely changed, and I and I gotta believe the same has trickled up into you know up the I eighty corridor there to to of Battle Mountain and maybe to a lesser degree, but that's that's the the key is like when you start normalizing the conversation, people get less skittish about it and it demystifies the whole process. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Walmart shopping thing because I have um Winnemuc is what nine thousand people eight something? yeah yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and Lovelock's like twenty eight hundred something. It's like way smaller. Um, yes. But um, I I tell my uh, clinicians who come into uh, the the fledgling ones, right, that the students and the interns, they come into the profession with a head full of um, very extreme and there's nothing wrong with this very extreme aspirational ethical boundaries. So so much so that it sometimes interferes with treatment. I go, you know, get out of your head the idea that you're um, never going to see your person in public and get out of your head the idea that you need to apologize for it up front. Because in my view, we're still the only profession under the medical umbrella that, like, treats ourselves like this. Like, my orthopedist has no problem saying hi to me. Now, he's not going to ask about my ACL reconstruction. But we've been told, don't even acknowledge your people in the aisles of Costco. <laughs> it's like, well, that contributes to the stigma. <laughs> like, we're doing it to ourselves. So... I'm curious now that you've, you've been there for a, a little bit longer. Do you allow yourself to go shopping and ha- how do you implement those boundaries? And I'm thinking in terms of like the listening audience, like when they see their clinician out in public, I don't want to make it weird, right? I want you go ahead, ha- go ahead and say hi to your clinician and thank them for the work they're doing. Hopefully it's good work. Um, How do you, how do you handle that now in a tiny little community where you, you step on each other every, every time you go out in public? Yeah. So it's important for me to kind of
1: share this piece of it is that because I live in two worlds, right? I, I'm Hispanic and there's that culture piece mm, of me, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also an American, is that culturally speaking, it is not only rude, it is disrespectful. Okay. To, to see somebody, you know, and not acknowledge them. Yes. Okay. Um, so I can tell somebody, one of my Hispanic patients till I'm blue in the face that, you know, you acknowledge me if you'd like to, and then I'll respond back. But if I don't and they notice that I was there and I didn't say something at my next session, they will say something to me. Wow. Okay. And so it is really, it's, it's challenging in that sense, but here's the thing is with all, you know, tra- my supervisors, both of my supervisors, one in Sacramento, one in Nevada, were ethics gurus, okay? And so it was just ingrained in me, ingrained in me about ethics. And so I, I know what you're telling me. And at the same time, I also have to be as human possible with my patients. Yes. And so what that looks like now is... Look, if I'm somewhere and you see me, um, we're going to try to talk about this as much up front to to kind of have a path. But if you see me and I see you and and you want to hug, I will hug you. I'm not going to push you away and say no. If I see your son for therapy and you're with somebody else, and most likely, and I love this. They're like, oh, yeah, this is Alex. It's so-and-so's therapist. Um, And so it's, it's interesting. I go to the coffee shop and everybody's like, Some of them may be my patients. Okay. And it's just it's just become a way of look, at the end of the day, I have to humanize this in myself and the process as much as possible. Okay. Because if I'm not a a champion for change, if I'm not if I'm not actively doing something to make a difference, I'm holding up the structure that creates stigma. Yes. And I'm not about holding up that structure. Oh man, I love that. And it may not be the same, you know, maybe in a more populated area, but for here, this is what works for me. And if I have to defend my ethics, absolutely, Jake, I will. Um, because I honestly do the best version that I can. Um, so I do my best and let go of the rest. And and I understand that. I, I'm in it every day.
0: I, th- I think people make the, the, uh, the, the conflation of terms that, acknowledging somebody as a client is a breach of confidence and it's not, it's not a breach of confidentiality. It's not a breach of privacy any more than when the dental assistant comes out and calls your name in the lobby. Like everybody in the lobby knows you're there for dental work. What they don't know is what work is being done. And, and that's where where I draw the line with, with my clinicians is I say, don't, don't talk about the work you do behind the scenes, but there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, George, you know, in, in the coffee shop. Zero. And then suddenly you go, well, how do you know that person? Patient, that's it. That's that. That's that's where it ends, and and that's not a breach of of HIPAA. That's not a breach of ethics. And uh, anybody wants to try to make that claim uh, has nothing better to do, I guess, with their time. See, but- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The way that I see it,
1: again, is that if I don't acknowledge them, I'm dismissing their yep. value. You are. Okay? And, and they're coming into therapy. And I'm supposed to foster and create a space that creates vulnerability and that says, I see value. I see your value. Even in this moment when you don't see it, yet I see you at the grocery store and I ignore you as a person. Okay? I, I'm sending a very conflicting message there. And so I try to live as authentically as possible with my work in session and outside. So if I see you in session, I see you outside of session. Um, And oftentimes that looks like asking for permission. What I say is, hey, I'd love to be able to acknowledge you. You get to choose what you call me Um, Mm -hmm. when I do that. You can call me a friend or whatever you'd like to say, but I'd like to just acknowledge you, especially with my Hispanic patients, okay? because it is extremely disrespectful. If I don't,
0: it's, it, we have uh, five ethical precepts that I've, I've covered on this show before. They're autonomy, justice, fidelity, um, non-maleficence and beneficence. And to, to briefly define those autonomy is respecting the, the ability of the person to choose for themselves what they want to do. So we don't, we don't make the error of omnipotence thinking that we're responsible for their choices. Um, justice is do the right thing, act on behalf of, you know, advocate, fidelity is be faithful, honor the the agreement into which you entered. Um, non is don't hurt anybody and beneficence is help somebody. So where we get into the ethical conflict there is are we helping or harming by um, so rigidly maintaining this uh, confidentiality that we end up harming the relationship? And I think you and I both land very firmly on the side of like we're not gonna we're not gonna harm anybody uh, by ignoring them. That's not something we're interested in doing. So, so we'll go ahead and acknowledge them and that will actually help not only the relationship individually, but also the overarching, uh, theme of what counseling is supposed to be, which we need to start tearing down some of the suspicion and, and, um, and stigma around it. And the way we do that is we normalize it. We just, we act normal. Um, you know, we, there's, there's no, there's no further harm that can be done than when we, um, Continue to uphold that structure that you're talking about that put it, put the restrictions and the barriers to care in place to begin with. Um, so I really, really appreciate the heck out of you saying that it makes, sometimes I feel like I'm in a vacuum. Sometimes I'm like (laughs) charging, (laughs) charging headlong into this, like, let's change the system. And people are like, boo, (laughs) what are you doing? Changing things? I'm like, I don't know. People are getting hurt and dying. Um, <laughs> you know what? That speaks to kind of
1: what, why I gravitated towards you when I first met you is, um, I think you said something like a uh, 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 plurs or plus, like people like us or something like that. You P- told me plus, plus, yes, people like PLUs, us. Plus, plus. Okay. I stole that from um, Jesse Lott. <laughs> and, and that's the thing is, I often feel like I'm in this little, you know, bubble myself. Um, so when I find people that are my tribe. Um, I, I absolutely hold on and follow closely to who they are and where they're going and, you know, what change they are bringing into this world, because, um, here's the thing is I don't know it all, um, right. but I'm going to do my best version to light up my little corner. Um, and so I definitely look for your light sometimes and just see oh. kind of where you're going and things that you're doing. Cause that's super important to have somebody that you can, you know, help you grow. Thanks, so thank man. you for that. And oh, you know right. that.
0: That mean that means so much to hear that. Um, it really does. Um, uh, you know, text me more often. <laughs> ask <laughs> ask questions if you have them. Um, let's lean on each other. Hey, I want to sh- I want to shift gears a little bit into um the idea. Well, no, actually, I want to stay with the destigmatizing for a second. So, um, I want to bring it back to Hispanic culture and the the heavy religiosity that tends to accompany it. Um, so in in my world, the last um. I don't know, seven to ten years. I've I've been working really hard at trying to bust through the idea that you if you're a follower of Jesus, for example, because I am and that's the, you know, I go to church and stuff like that, uh, then psychotherapy is somehow incompatible and it's like of the occult and you're not supposed to go get mental health care. Um and we've done a really good job within my church community of of breaking through that and hybridizing the ideas of Psychology, understanding human, you know, functioning and following a faith path of some sort. How has been, how has it been your experience working with your population, um, rural, Hispanic, um, fighting the, the religious stigma that stands in the way? Or is it even a problem? (laughs)
1: No, absolutely. And that's one of, the, one of the biggest challenges. So, you know, I made a little list of, you know, what are some stigmas that I can speak to that are my truth that I see? OK, um, so not only like personally things that I've lived, but things that I see in my office. It's mm-hmm. um, so like I was sharing you before, you know, the, you know, the history, the lack of understanding and education. But one of them is religion. OK, <laughs> see, we're, we're, we grew up in a really collectivistic culture. Okay, so family is at the core of everything, and and you're really taught at a young age to not be an inconvenience in that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're taught to put family or, or the idea of family before everything, and so um, and one of those things is the religion that comes with that, okay, or the faith that may come with that, and so um, I just think of growing up Catholic because we grew up Catholic uh, Christian now, but um, when we were young it was about you went to confess, right? So you didn't share your issues with people. You went to um, priests and you confessed about what was happening. Um, Oftentimes I remember, even I still even hear it sometimes. They say, you know, you just need to pray about that issue um, or you need to, you know, just seek God about it. Okay, Um, But what I have found now, and it's interesting to me, is that being in this small community, I've been asked by like the Mormon community to go into one of their meetings and just provide a little bit of education about when to seek therapy wow um and i actually reached out to the catholic community um so that i could go do it in spanish about look here's some ideas of when people should actually seek some professional help
0: um and i was shut down okay um yeah wow Wow. absolutely and so well good for the lds people at least right
1: you know, go them. Okay? Yeah. I loved it, uh, and it was actually really fun. And and you know what? Actually, a lot of referrals generated from that, and it was it was neat to see people say, you know what? For the first time, I'm going to be really vulnerable with someone out other than you know my ward leader. Yeah. Um. And and I need some help here. Um. And I was hoping that I could generate that with some of the Hispanic community because, like I told you, most of my Hispanic clients don't just call me and say, "Hey, I'd like to see." You know, I saw your name, and I realized I need some help. It's, you know, my comadre, which is, you know, um, someone who baptized my son or whatever, maybe um, my uncle told me about you and they said you helped them. And, you know, I'm having this small issue and I want to see if you can help me. And that's where most of my referrals come from. It's, you know, you've helped somebody before that I know. And so I can therefore trust you. Um, but with religion, it's you're taught to keep everything in house. Right. It's. We, it's almost as disrespectful. If I go seek help outside of the house, um, the message, the underlying message I'm sending is I don't trust you or I can't come to you for that. And as a culture, as a family, that's disrespectful to the family because we're supposed to be able to help one another at all times. And culture, religion plays a big piece of that.
0: There's there's organizational egos that that exist too, right? There's an ego within a family. There's an ego within a church community. There's an ego within businesses. Where you know, it's like instead of self-examination, when people are fleeing you, you um you instead get defensive, right? So it's like, well, why isn't this person feeling safe enough to come to the to the family, to the to the church, to the to the HR department, um, instead of going, well, we what can we do better to make a warm and welcoming environment? It's shame on you for, for not using the resources we, we told you to use and, and you know, going outside. And, and I talk about it, the shame, guilt treadmill. Sometimes that people get into where like the, the neurological function of shame and guilt, uh, shame says you, you failed to meet somebody's expectations and guilt says, go make it right. And that mm-hmm. comes from Izzard's work. Um, so where we get into this shame, guilt treadmill is, Big, big organizational shame says, and it often is religious, is like, you're falling short of God, keep trying. You're still falling short of God, keep trying, and you'll never get there right? You'll, there's no, there's no actual deed performance, whatever that you can do to reconcile the thing that you, you did wrong. And that is a heavy, heavy burden on some people. So of course it traps them in. It's, I don't want to say cultish, but, but it feels like that where it's like, well, I don't want to disappoint this big, giant, massive organization that often, you know, is my voice of authority, provides my food and, you know, shelter, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, my needs aren't being met by them. How do you, how do we reconcile that? You know, um, you know, my my job isn't satisfying me in whatever way. I don't have a path to report uh, harassment, or I, you know, I just really want a pay increase because I'm doing more work, and yet the wall the the door's closed to ask for that. But the expectation is, come on in and ask us for it, and then we'll judge you for asking. <laughs> it's tough. Absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely hit the nail on that one. It's absolutely correct. And you know, I also
1: want to highlight that there are some real, you know, you know, leaders out there um, who are really um, valuing the help of, you know, a professional. Um, so there's a specific church in Winamaka, um who I work frequent with the pastor there, um, and it, it's just great to be able to see him. Step back, recognize his strengths, and say, "Look, I'm I'm great at this piece of things, just not so good about this." And I'd love to create a connection where I can funnel some people down to you um, to help me with that piece. And and so there's some people who really are trying to take a more um, just different path. Yeah, Um, but it's it's just challenging because I really want to serve the Hispanic community, and I feel like there's always like a obstacle or something. And, um, you know, it's just tough. I mean, to this day, my dad thinks that like, if I, if I show up at his home or my mom's home and he's like, Oh, so how was it working with the crazies today? And I was just like, really, uh, just, just had people. someone who lost their son today, but not really crazy. You know, I had someone who's you know ended a relationship, not really crazy. Um, in my head, I'm thinking these things, right? But it's just it's so funny to me that he just still to this day thinks that I go help the severely mentally ill.
0: Yeah, and you know maybe that's true, maybe that's accurate. Um, and and then we, as much as we'd like to fight the the labeling, right? Uh, sometimes. You know, we just take it a piece at a time, uh, and keep chipping away. I mean, you're you're a systems guy, uh, like tackling governmental systems, bureaucratic systems, organizational systems. It just takes time until you know things evolve. We'd love for you know one big fiery speech or you know a brown bag luncheon to to change everybody's mind and have it like take off like wildfire. Um, but that's usually not the way it works. There's a lot of forces that's that stand in the way, and a lot of those forces are simply the inability to evaluate self because to evaluate self requires vulnerability. Vulnerability comes with risk, risk of what pain, you know, we, who wants more pain. Um, so it's, it's just really, it's challenging, but, but if you keep at it, you know, eventually over time things do shift. Um, and then you look back over, you know, several years and you go, man, we really made an impact. That's when Lindsay and I, you know, when we formed Zephyr, we were like, let's set our eyes on 20 years, not to. And, um, and that's yeah. helped make a lot of our decisions a lot easier as well. Uh, we don't get frustrated when things don't like pivot immediately, or success doesn't land in our laps overnight. Um, I wanted to I really should, take yeah, the, go, ahead, the go approach, ahead. Sorry, Jake. I really, I really take the approach that people genuinely try their
1: best. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and even if that means that they're armored up mm-hmm. and, and they have some protective layers on them, I really, I really take the idea or you know, foster this idea of you know. I'll use my dad, for example, he's genuinely trying his best in his understanding of this world. He developed some really good protective factors growing up in his, you know, his upbringing mm-hmm. um, and some views about what men should look like and what men should believe and think and see. Um, because, I mean, I remember when he lost my grandma, um, he went through depression and was experiencing panic attacks. And he just thought it was a physiological issue, a condition. And I was like, no, dad, you're depressed and you have anxiety. And you need to get some help for that. And he refused initially until he came and said, okay, what is, what do I do? who do I wow, talk to about this? Cool. Okay. Um, and so I, I truly think he was trying his best at that time based on the armor he was wearing um, and with time. Okay. And patience and without judgment. Okay. I wasn't there to shame him or guilt him and anything. I just said, hey when you're ready, or if you'd like to speak to me about it, you know, I'll be here and I'll I'll point you in the direction of someone who can help you. Um, But I I genuinely even take with my Hispanic population and even that instance with the church, I was just like, when they're ready, um, I'll be here. Um, But I'm definitely going to just honor them where they're at.
0: Yeah. And, and it's really important not to do, I told you so. And I think that's really tempting for a lot of people who offer something in whatever it is. Um, We're just talking about counseling in our profession, but somebody offers something, they're declined time passes that the, the individual of the organization comes back says you know what actually i, I want that thing that you offered and we're, we, the temptations go neener neener i knew this was going to happen and you should have listened to me the first time it's like well that's not how it happens that's not how it works and so we need to continually be um, non-judgmental and open and welcome and receptive to whenever the opportunity rolls around um you, what you did there with your dad is is really really awesome you you left the invitation on the table you know and and i think that's super important and another important piece too i think is the psychoeducation that you you spent several sessions i think i heard you say teaching and what that does for people who are listening what it does is it keeps you in your frontal lobe it keeps frontal lobe is safe it's certain it's knowledge it's information it's executive functioning it's all those things that like we just help with, we, I'm extending my arm and you can't see that because it's audio, but, but it helps keep people away when you intellectualize and rationalize, right? So if you go in a limbic system where your emotional functioning happens, that's where the vulnerability occurs because we don't necessarily have control over whether or not we feel stuff. We have control over how much and how long we feel it with our. Executive functioning or frontal lobe. So as long as you're teaching, 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 um, it really helps to build rapport and it breaks down those walls. Like, oh man, this guy really has something to offer because he's just giving me free knowledge. That's that's strange. Who does that? Um, and then over time, you go, oh, maybe I can trust this guy with a little bit of a peek behind my curtain, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And before you know it, you're doing therapy, and the person's being vulnerable, and they're realizing that the vulnerability doesn't come with pain; it comes with health and healing and, and, uh, recovery, which is super, super awesome. I, I appreciate you touching on both those points. Um, you can say something.
1: Nah. Oh, okay. You did a great job. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um,
0: so let's, let's shift into something that's a, it's a popular topic today. And I know in the beginning before we started recording, I said, you know, I like these things to be evergreen, you know, so that anybody can download them at any point in, in the future and it'll still be relevant. We're dealing with a pandemic pandemic's not going to last forever. Um, but there's stress lessons to learn from this, and you used a phrase earlier on before we started recording that I love, love, loved, and I wanted you to explain that. So go ahead. There's your T. Yeah. up.
1: Yeah, oh, perfect. Thank you.
0: Um, so there's life
1: pre-COVID, and then there's life after COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and aside from the grief. Um, that we're all experiencing in so many different layers and so many different complexities. Um, life pre COVID, we made X amount of decisions every day. Okay. We had stability. We had structure for the most part. We kind of knew what our routine looked like and what to expect with COVID that has intensified and magnified. And we've experienced this idea of what's called decision fatigue. And what I mean by that now I don't just get to walk out my door and say, I'm going to go to work, mm-hmm. jump in, you know, muscle memory takes over or just drive to work. And now it's this idea of, you know, am I safe? Am I healthy? Did I bring my sanitizer with me? Did I bring my mask with me? Do I have to stop and pump gas? Do I need wipes? Do I need this? So we are making far more micro decisions about everything we do. And physiologically, there's a response internally to that. Okay? Um, I don't want to go into all that. No, 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 no. Keep don't. going.
0: No, definitely go into that. I think it's really important that people understand how their brains function and their bodies. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, um, and so it, it, there's our, our bodies are trying to stay in homeostasis at all times. Okay, I mean you did an excellent podcast, if I remember correctly, about what that looks like in our bodies and um, when there's a stress response and our HPA axis and all of that, um, which would take a lot more time to explain. Um, but our adrenal glands are then are trying to kind of stay in homeostasis. They start pumping out a stress response hormone. Um, So, when our bodies are constantly in that limbic fight, flight, freeze state, okay, it creates fatigue. It creates us to be tired. Um, And so, when we think about life before COVID, we may have experienced this already okay, with our everyday stressors that even though we were able to kind of manage them, um, they might still be stressful, right. Making a presentation at work, meeting somebody new, um, a relational issue, whatever it may be. Okay. That now is, you know, intensified. I don't even know how much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our bodies aren't meant to warehouse or, or manage that much, um, response. It's, it, it becomes kind of circuited, Okay, kind of like in a trauma response, where something yep. it becomes so intense that our body circuits. Um, you can. I'm an MDR therapist, right? Yeah. You can tell. Um, but it's it's we have we do that more in a micro way now, um, where it it's happening every day and we're not even realizing it, but yet we're finding ourselves so much more fatigued and so much more tired and so much more irritable because we're experiencing underlying emotions that. A, we don't have language for, mm-hmm. we can't identify. Um, and if we don't, we can't, if we don't feel it, we can't heal it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I got to be able to name it. Um, but I don't even know what it's experiencing. I'm just feeling all these things. Now on top of that, I'm having like severe anxiety attacks or fear or whatever it may be, social disconnection loss. Um, there's just so much that's happening. And, um, I tend to bring this idea up with almost all my patients, Okay. And so what we talk about is how do I create a world where I have to focus on my internal locus of control, right? Like, uh, how can I prioritize some things in my day that will help reduce the amount of micro decisions I have to make? Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and just the idea of that, that I can find some, I don't like the world, the word normal, but the way that I can find some, uh, What's relatively common for me, right? Something that brings safety to my world. Um, and so we see this. People are experiencing this every day and have no idea, Jake, that they're experiencing decision fatigue. Um, I see it with some of my executive patients. Okay. Yeah. Um, at work, it's no longer just policies and procedures, um, it is complexities to that. Um, right. And so they're like, I just, I'm not able to manage the same workload that I could manage before. And I was like, well, let's take a work, look at that workload. Is it really the same workload? And when people again, can accept the reality that it is not the same, then we can actually begin to heal and change. Um, so awareness doesn't bring change. Awareness brings choices. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so once you have that choice, you can begin to make practice in your life to, to bring about that change.
0: One time I was working at Willow Springs and it, and when you're in a residential treatment facility, some insurance plans require what's called a geographically distant family therapist. Uh so essentially you're having your session with the kid you know a couple times a week but then you also have a family session and thank god for this I love it um where back home in their hometown they have their therapist with the parents in the room on the phone and I remember this geographically distant family therapist is the name <laughs> of this thing GDFT um which sounds like a a a, a curse word but <laughs> anyway um <laughs> this gal said after we hung up uh, with the family and I excused the kid, we, we did a little debrief afterward and she, and we were kind of like, what happened? You know, what's going on? And she says, you know, sometimes insight is the booby prize. And I thought that was so clever because simply having awareness doesn't give you a path to reconciliation or restitution or uh, even just fixing things. Um so when you have this awareness, sometimes it does, sometimes it's simply unlocking it, you're like, oh, that's why this is going on. Okay. Now I can choose to be at peace with it. Right. Which is a choice. And you still have to do something. Um, it's a very minor, low level of, uh, of, uh, intervention, I guess, but you still have to practice you that. Do, you do. Gonna- you do. Yeah. You, you can't, you, every time you, you make one of those micro decisions and you, and you become aware, you're like, oh, I'm doing this thing again. Oh, that's right. This is part of my, and I was going to uh, offer a, a couple of words there, maybe routine or habit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Great. so I I don't like normal either because what is normal? It's all individualized, but especially not new normal. None of this is normal and I don't ever want to get the idea that we would that's being distant from each other is somehow normal. No, get that. Out. No, we no never, ever, uh, not in the history of mankind. So, um, I just reject that wholesale, but the idea that we can find something that works for us and is consistent, I think is really important. So maybe my pattern now, or my routine is that I don't have yes. to think about, wiping down the gas pump. I just carry wipes with me. Okay, that's just a thing. Like I have, I have paper towels hanging over the sink. I have wipes in my truck. No big deal. Um, and then we can get a little bit more peace so that we're not making so many decisions perhaps. Um, that's one strategy that I would think of, you know, in, enveloping multiple micro decisions into sim- a simple new pattern of, of uh, behavior. What are some of yours though that you're offering your your clients? Your pay- you, you call them patients, which is interesting because it's usually a medical term uh whereas in mental we usually say clients i'm nice. curious where that comes from i actually like patient better but um yeah. you know client could be real estate
1: <laughs> yeah so i i try to use my my persons my people to yes. be honest with you um but that just shows that i've worked in some clinic settings behavioral health specialist okay? oh, yeah. and so the clinic okay? um, and it, it's a patient at the clinic and so I think that's where I adopted most of that and yeah. even when I'm writing my notes I am like okay I have to remember to change it back to client because I find myself typing in patient initially um, so that's where that comes from um, but okay so what you said there is really key that's one of the things that we do is we take a we help identify what are some of the micro decisions and sometimes it's really like uh, a revelation for a lot of them it's so interesting to see that they're like oh I didn't that i was doing this and and once they do that we're able to take a couple of them cluster them and make them into a new pattern okay so we'll take all of these and we will mindfully be aware of this and and we'll turn that into a you know pattern and then we talk about muscle memory and how you know it was initially challenging i like to use the bike metaphor like we didn't know how to ride our bike training Mm -hmm. wheels, and then Mm -hmm. eventually we just hop on our bike and don't really think about it anymore
0: Right. You don't think about foot up, foot down, brake, steering, wobbling. Yeah. It just, it just goes right after a while. It just becomes your, your way of doing it.
1: Yeah. Whereas when you're initially starting, you're like, I got to make sure that I'm, you know, this is where my brakes at. This is this and that. So um, again, they become aware of all the micro decisions and we break them down. Um, I'll have them, you know, recount the last 24 hours for me. Um, And they will tell me the last 24 hours. And even in that I have to slow them down and say, okay, and so and i'm jotting everything down and i'm helping them kind of create this awareness of wow i didn't realize how many small decisions i was making mm-hmm. okay um and once they do that a lot of times they're just like whoa like god like how did i get to this space and so i have to just show up with compassion and they have to show up with compassion for themselves about you know you're just trying to survive and adapt and- um, and so one of the key things is taking a couple of them, turning them into a pattern. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is really ch- CBT here, but really challenging which ones you really do need and which ones you don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did a really good job on one of your podcasts explaining um, how to kind of go down the Modero thing, um, explaining, you know, Challenging this thought is an emotional. Is something I can you know deal with right now, or can I put it on the back burner? Um, And so helping people figure out why it's there, but do I really need it or not? Um, And so they help. We'll call that eliminating some of them. Okay, Mm -hmm. Um, and then and I have them keep a list of all this, right? So, and then I have them teach this to one person, and then that person usually signs off on it. That's okay.
0: awesome. I want to jump in real quick and point out something that Christian Conti shared with us way back in grad school that his dad taught him. His dad was an educator for a million years. And um, it was that I asked him one day, I was like, Hey, how do you retain all this stuff about books? Like he was always referencing authors and books and whatnot. And he goes, um, so my dad taught me that if you read as though you're going to teach it to someone else, you'll retain it a lot better. And I was like, that's brilliant. It changed everything about how I absorb information now. But to, to your point, like teaching somebody you never learn something better than when you teach it, right? So that I learned that through coaching sports. Um, I was never a better discus thrower than when I was <laughs> coaching high school students. Long after yeah. I could throw a discus, but yeah, that's great. And I don't think I use that. I don't think any of us use that often enough. Hey, take this thing and then go teach it to somebody else. It's and it creates a ripple effect of healing, which is great. So yeah, go on, yeah. go on. This is great. Yeah,
1: I was. Um, your family, friends, or whatever is going to get free therapy from this, right? That's and right. Get out of that. Absolutely. Um, but what I'm trying to get there is I'm trying to make it a, a practice, right? So, um, and I'm more likely to put something into practice and make it maintainable. If then I've talked to somebody, cause I'm really from the idea that if you understand something, you don't have to, it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so when my patients are leaving, I don't want them to just reiterate or whatever they've memorized from session. I, I ask them, okay, tell me what you understand.
0: Right. Okay? Right. Um,
1: because then that to me, it's stuck. Okay. Um, and a lot of therapists say, "Okay, oh, something that spoke to you, or something that stood out to you, right? That's mm-hmm. well, probably something you've really kind of remembered about the session." Yeah. Um, but something you understood, and then I have them explain the layers of that to me. You know, what did that look like? What did it sound like? What did I say? What does this mean?
0: I, you're, you're teaching me stuff right now, and I love it. And that actually, the takeaway that I've taught everybody, I, I also got from Christian Conti, which is a, a, a summary point, summary point from the session to, to see where the client was and whether or not they're engaged. And also like, you know, if they're full of anxiety, they probably just grab the last thing you said. Um, oh, showing my internet connection is unstable. I hope it's still recording. Um, and, uh, any, anyway, uh, what you're doing there is you're augmenting it. It's like, um, and I'm, I'm, too, I'm still learning so much. I'm going to bring this back too and teach, teach my people like, don't ask them what they're taking away, ask them what they understood and what they're going to apply. That's, that's, that's a better way of doing it. So I really appreciate it. You know what else I appreciate about you is how integrated you are. If you're a fledgling clinician listening to this interview and you're like, Jake and Alex are pulling things from all sorts of, you know, forebears of the profession. That is not what you want to do when you're young. You want, when you're young, you want to anchor yourself in one thing and get really good at it so that you know where its limitations are and then pull something in. Um, so you hear us saying CBT, EMDR, um, narrative exist. There's a little bit of existentialism coming in mm-hmm. here. There's emotional functioning. Like we didn't just get here overnight and we're not cherry picking. We've really studied this stuff a lot and practiced it and then learned where the limitations are so that we can wrap it around with other things. We can be fluent no matter who walks through our door. Um, but I really appreciate that. You're not only saying those things, but then identifying them to the audience when you're saying you're like, so here's a CBT technique so that, you know, it helps enhance everybody's understanding. So good on you for yeah. doing that.
1: Absolutely. I love that point, Jake. Uh, like I said, I had really good supervisors. And one of the things that they taught me is that um, I, I struggled. I struggled with theories. Like uh, I'm more about just feeling in the moment. But one of the things that they taught me and that's really stuck with me is that, look, you have to see the theory as, as a map. Okay, yep. um, This is how you get from this location to that location. Once you have that, once you know how to get there, um, you can take a detour. You can take different alternative routes but you know how to get to that destination. But if you don't even know how to get from A to B yet, I mean, you start taking alternative routes, you're going to get lost a little bit. And so I have really worked hard at that piece clinically for myself and myself as a therapist. Um, That's been a really big piece of me is just what really speaks to me, understanding that to the best ability, and then really making it my own. So that's been a
0: journey. Are you supervising? you have interns? I do not have any interns. No, and I'm not supervising do you want um, to, or is that not on the? Yeah. Here's the... the thing
1: is I, I want to, I love what I do. Um, and I'm touching a whole bunch of different arenas and areas of, you know, Northern Nevada. and It's kind of really cool. I'm working with really great people. I we spoke about love luck early and why they're doing so well, but there's some really good people in love luck. Mm-hmm. Like Shauna and, and um, Sarah, yeah. who are, you know, So I'm I'm involved in a lot of that, but I also like to get to a different place in my life where it's not a hundred percent clinical. Yeah. Um, and you're the men talk about that, um, too. But that's the next phase of my life is, uh, again, I don't want to fully define myself by one thing all the time. And so that's an area I'd like to expand, whether that's supervising, whether that's administ- like administration. I-, I don't know yet, but
0: you need, I'd love to get to that. You need, like I tell many people, I believe can pull it off. You need to open your own agency and create a farm system of talent so that you grow the profession appropriately. And it's not just individuals with their shingle tacked up, slugging it out 30 hours, 40 hours a week with client time. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's better if you can create pipelines and pathways for other people to do it. And you would absolutely crush it. If you could do that, you would be a very, very good supervisor and probably an administrator too. Cause you already, you've already been through lots of things in life. Um, and I, I have no problem teaching you how to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm available to anybody who wants to learn how to, you know, run an agency effectively. And, Cause I, <laughs> believe me, I can tell you how to, to avoid the potholes that Lindsay and I have stepped in <laughs> the last five years. And I don't, nobody else needs to learn that on their own. um, I want to circle back, though, to the uh, uh, thing I want to be mindful of time, too, because I know that, you know, you've you've given a a lot now and um, it just I really appreciate it. So um, but this decision fatigue came up in the earlier conversation because you and I were talking about our families and our kids going back to school or not going back to school. And so while I I really appreciate the examples that you gave that are practical with regard to, like, wiping things down and wearing masks and, you know, all that stuff, um, I think the bigger awareness is in our daily lives of things that we previously took for granted, like getting in the car and driving to work and just like closing the door on family. Most of us are not allowed to do that anymore because most of us are working from home in some capacity or another while tending to the children. And now we have to be educators at home as well. Uh, Talk, talk about some more micro decisions that I think people probably aren't aware that they're making and are stressing them out, but could possibly become aware of through just listening to us talk.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And this will speak to kind of like a tool
1: for it as well. Um, I'll give you my example of today. Um, I told my wife I was going to do this last night. Right. Um, and this morning I had to make sure I did certain steps to make sure I was available. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas before I wouldn't, I would just, you know, get in my car, drive my office. I had my time with you. rest today I was like, okay, make sure that the kids are showered and dressed because my office is upstairs where the bedrooms are at. Um, and so I needed them to be downstairs so that I didn't hear as much background noise. And so, um, and then what are you going to plan to do while I'm up there? Are you guys going to stay in the house? Are you guys going to go for a bike ride? Um, you guys going to go outside? You know, if the baby cries, like, what are you going to do if you need me? Um, and these are all decisions that we had to, to make, right? Luckily, my wife's amazing, like I said, and um, communication key. And so we plan for that. So we have a conversation about what this looks like. Okay. And so get out of my not...
0: living room, by the way, Alex, because that's <laughs> literally what goes on in our house. I'm trying to be on zoom and the kids are screaming at each other. Ah, uh, yes. Absolutely. It. Anyway, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's really helpful because um, once I've had this conversation with her about what it is that I'm needing and she's able to express what she needs in that situation. Okay. Uh, we understand each other's needs. And so the next time I jump on a call, I'm saying hey, got a call going on, we have a plan already what this looks like. And we don't have to rehearse all those micro decisions again. Yeah. Okay. And so having a conversation and that may look like for yourself, like, so for me, uh, I may have some internal conversations with myself about, okay, I'm going to go do this today. Um, what does this look like? You know, create a plan for myself. And next time I go do that, I'm going to have to make as many decisions. Um, it just reminds me of when I started driving. Initially, I was in my head thinking about all these things. Now, create a plan of what that looks like when I drive. Jump in the car, do it. Doesn't really affect me as much uh, physiologically anymore.
0: Okay, it's an interesting um, paradoxical intention there because as clinicians, we're often trying to help people get out of their habitual ruts and become aware of the decisions they're making inside of big. Uh, activities and this we're trying to do the opposite we're trying to like pull all your like overthinking into just one big envelope <laughs> yes like, man oh man um, our jobs are a little hard. bit of harm
1: reduction there right <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah for sure yeah I was having a conversation recently with uh, Eric Schoen who you may or may not know um, he runs Community Chest up at Virginia City and um, he's he made this really incredible observation that we are in a, in a period of time that's very unique because as clinicians, we're often asked when these people come in, they go blah, 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 problem. And we go blah, 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 treatment plan. And then at some point down the road end right, it's, it's resolved. Uh, all, all other things being equal. That's, that's the formula. And, um, now we've got person walks in with problem but then we we have actual other problems going on that, that are related to work and family and online and offline and you know all these things. And so the interesting unique position is that we're often trained to separate what's called content from the process. Content is all those distractions that come in on a weekly basis that avoid dealing with the actual problem you came into the therapy setting with to, to resolve. And we try to all right, let's let's not worry about your boss at work because you came in with um, grief over the loss of your dog or whatever. Um, so it's that's uh, all and well, all well and good that you you're struggling at work, but let's worry about grief and loss. Um, but now, the the problems that are interfering are not just content problems; they're actual problems, and and it's interfering with the treatment plan for the for the presumed stated goal. And we start to get into this discussion of like, what's the hierarchy of what the problem is. Um, Because these ongoing problems of unemployment, eviction threats, um, paying bills, uh, kids at school, kids not at school, on and on and on, are actually creating more stress and anxiety often than the problem that they came into the the setting with. And so Mm -hmm. here's the real issue, though. We don't have a map. We don't have a treatment plan for that because we don't know when this is all going to end and what it'll look like. And so it's it's put the clinicians in a tough spot because we, we used to be seen as the the people to go to to get some sort of semblance of of direction and now we're all in it we don't know we don't have any direction and the the only thing I could conclude was like you, we have to learn to settle into embracing mystery we have to be okay with not knowing and that's not something that Westerners are particularly good at um, we want to <laughs> figure things out we want roadmaps we want guarantees and blueprints and all this stuff. Um, my question to you is: How are you experiencing this in your own life, your clinical life, um, professionally or personally? And then, what are your clients experiencing? Is it, is it are we are we off in this, or is it like is this pretty uniform?
1: I think this is pretty uniform. And so, what this looks like for me is uh, learning to lean into my uncertainty. How do I sit in my own discomfort, right? I bring this so much up in therapy about you got to learn to sit in discomfort. Growth comes from discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. It starts to sound kind of preachy. Um And then here I am faced with it, with uncertainty. And I'm like, how do I practice and lean into the uncertainty of things, right? So I want to control whatever I can because that brings peace and security for me. Sure. Luckily, I've had practice living in, you know, two worlds, you know, my Hispanic world and my westernized American world. Um, and now therapist world um, because here's the thing is I come from the idea or my own faulty belief idea that I didn't get to just belong right I was the first one to graduate go to school uh, so in every realm that I've been in I've kind of always been kind of the first in that Um and so when I became a clinician I didn't feel like I was just I got to be a clinician with everybody else I felt like I had to prove my value there
0: right?
1: mm. um, and so I had to do a lot of work in, and I've had what I'm trying to say is I've had to really learn to lean into the uncertainty of things and being okay with being uncomfortable. Okay. And that my value, my worth doesn't come from everybody else. You know, I woke up today, love myself, everybody else's love is just extra. Um, and so what that translates for me in, in session is not only clinically, but personally, when someone's sitting there and I say, this is tough, the genuineness that comes from my voice and my tone, about saying I see a piece in you and an emotion in you that I recognize in myself. That's called empathy, sir. Okay. People need that. People are craving this idea of you see me, you get me, you value it and you understand it. Okay. And so I literally, when I say, when we talk about empathic regard, right, I I really practice what that looks like because I put in the work in my world. I lean into the discomfort of things. It's much easier for me to say, you know, coming onto this podcast, I was like, what is there really that I have to share that would be helpful for any of Jake's listeners? I'm just a small little Mexican dude that is just trying to light his end of the world. And my wife said, like, "Find excitement. The like, great reframe, but that's not working, okay? Um, but it was uncomfortable for me. And when I said, you know what? I got to lean into this, okay? Whatever may come from this situation is going to be growth. Regardless of what way it goes, I'm going to grow from it. And so I had to genuinely use all of that. And, I mean, there's a lot of great re- research out there about your mindset, right? And Dr. Leah Crum out at Yale and all that about when our mind believes that our bodies will follow that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard about that research that she did about… Um,
0: I have not, but it, it, C-R-U-M-B, Crum, is that what I heard?
1: Yeah, Leah Crum, yeah. And she basically was measuring measuring college kids' broken, so she was giving the money. Their ghrelin levels, the peptide that's in their gut. Mm -hmm. And she actively was measuring it. And she gave him the first shake she gave him was like a chocolatey indulgent full of carbs, right? I have heard of this. Yes. Yeah. And then they came back, measured the same thing, but gave him a sensible shake, Mm -hmm. right? That was low cal, low sugar, but it's the same shake both times, but there was a way difference in, uh, in their ghrelin levels. Okay. So the first time it signaled that they consumed some calories or they consumed a lot of calories. So therefore they weren't hungry. And the second time, but grelin said, basically, you've consumed a little bit of calories. You're still hungry, even though it was the same shape.
0: Really, okay? but so different- our
1: mindset is so key in this. Okay, yeah? and so when you can, cho- when you can, and make that choice and practice leaning into that discomfort of this may be challenging and uncomfortable for me, but my goal here is to grow. And so I practice that in session. This may be challenging and uncomfortable for you, but your goal here is to grow, right? And so. I keep it as transparent as possible patients. I even have this funny tool that I have them. you know, I tell them, okay, on your way home today, you are to make a completely alternate route home. Okay. You cannot take That's the awesome. same route. <laughs> and they yeah. come back the next day and they're like, God, that was awful. It took longer. Right. And I'm like, okay. And what else did you notice? And they're like, Oh, I realized this and this and this yeah. and this and this. Right. But I'm just like, When you can slow it down and lean into something that's uncomfortable, you're going to find growth in it.
0: Yeah. I'm going to rip off something from my uh, Sparks clinical director, Jesse Lott, who says, my job is not to make you feel better. My job is to make you better. It's like, yeah, same thing. We can make you feel better in the moment, but that doesn't do you any good in the long run. That's awesome.
1: I love Brown's version of it. She says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right.
0: Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That's another. It requires an ego dissolution to, yeah. to humble oneself and, and yeah, get it right, not be right. That's brilliant. That's awesome. Great, great, um, great analogy, great, um, offering there. That I appreciate that. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up and let you go because I've got an 11 o'clock and it's 1037 on my machine. <laughs> um, this has been awesome. I, what I wanted to do was say, well, Alex, tell me about the narrative that you have of self doubt that would lead you to believe that you don't have anything to contribute, <laughs> but we don't need to go there. <laughs> um, what is important is that you, you're aware of it and you made the active choice to uh, lean in anyway and say, well, we'll see where it goes. And it, and it turns out, I mean, like I, I, I do the podcast because it's like, it's fun, right? It's fun to talk to people, but I also want to offer something to the world and leave my mark. And, um, I say frequently this stuff doesn't do any good locked up inside my head. So we might as well share it. Um, but I learned so much from my guests and you absolutely helped me. I'm, I never go back and listen to my own stuff. Cause I, I just feel like I, you know, I don't need to go back. I, there's more time in the world to like listen to other people, but I'm going to probably go back and re listen to this because you hit on so many things where I either said internally or actually out loud, I'm like, that I'm going to bring that back. And I'm, <laughs> and I, I don't bother to write them down because that's a distraction. I want to be present. Um, So now I've forgotten them, (laughs) but I'm aware that there are that many moments that I was like, I need to go back and listen to this again and actually take notes so that I can, you know, regurgitate what you've said. Um, You're going to be an incredible blessing to everybody who listens, but also the people probably who haven't listened in all the areas in which I run, where I'm going to bring your uh, insights and perspectives because this was supremely beneficial. Um, So thank you for that. Absolutely. Jake,
1: you know, to wrap it up for myself, the one thing that I want to share is uh, that I've actively worked at is owning my own privilege. Okay. And what I mean by that is if I don't own it, recognize, see it and use it to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then I'm holding up that structure. Yes. Okay. And I'm not about that. I'm about, you know, tearing down things that are not helpful. And if that means sitting in discomfort, you know, with my own faulty beliefs and my own ideas. Right. Um, And then there's something that I said that speaks to somebody then I'm going to do it, okay? Yeah. I'm going to sit in it. Um, I remember the scariest thing I ever did was for my bachelor party. Is I went bungee jumping.
0: And <laughs> oh, No <wow>. thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, I jump out of an airplane man.
0: before I jump with a cord attached <laughs> to my feet. What a best man, right? And it was actually kind of crazy. It
1: was in L.A., and they uh, it's a five-mile hike to the bridge to nowhere where oh, wow. you jump, and then you, you hike five miles back. So you have five miles to think about what you're going to do. Oh, man. Yeah. And so – it was the scariest moment of my life and, and I just really slowed things down and I, you know, regardless of the reasons of why I jumped, I jumped. And so now I really toward work, I work towards that idea of, you know what, I'm going to take, that and I'm going to jump with it. Um, because I'm not going to hold up a, a system that brings stigma, that preaches stigma that, you know, just helps kind of create stigma. Um, something I may say may be helpful or a blessing to somebody and you may not, but at the end of the day, um, do my best and let go of the rest.
0: Yeah. I think privilege has got become kind of an epithet lately where it's like, you know, we've, we've conflated earned privilege with unearned privilege and then, um, unaware privilege with aware privilege. And there's certain mechanisms that we can absolutely use to, um, hold up, uh, ineffective structures, um, willfully oppress, um, ignorantly oppress. Um, and I think the idea is like, we don't want to like just get rid of all privilege. That would be nonsensical. What we want to do is leverage it appropriately um, and in a non-arrogant fashion. Um, it would be different if I were just up here sermonizing people about what Jake thinks is right with the world and how it should be done. Um, that would be a very strong misuse of the privilege that I have to, you know, probably nobody would listen anyway, like. That's, that's super arrogant. Um, but I want to want to learn along the way. And hopefully by modeling that through conversation and humility, other people will go, oh, yeah, it's, it's okay to not know things, right? And then we step yeah. into that uncertainty. All right, well, what's one thing that you want the audience to take away? Um, something they can apply or whatever, or maybe we should rephrase that. What's one thing that you want them to understand?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: the one thing I want people to understand is kind of the title of what my it's is going to be one day. And that title is that what makes me special, okay, me, you, is our story. Mm. Okay, it's who I am. And when we can accept that reality, that who I am, flawed, imperfected, with issues, with no issues, but when you can accept that, you can begin to live a more wholehearted and best version of yourself. Okay. And so one day you will see my book and it's gonna be um what makes me special is my story. And so If people can take that, meditate on it, kind of really process it, um, it can begin
0: to create the first step of healing. And so that's key to me. I love that. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm not even going to add anything. Thank you, Alex (laughs) Escobel of Winnemucca, Nevada. Um, We are uh, so grateful. And on behalf of the Naga Notes team and the entire Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.